Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. In this episode, Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions talks to Nicholas Badminton. Nicholas is a world-renowned futurist speaker, mentoring executives and leaders to ignite their curiosity and motivate teams to imagine their ideal futures. He has worked with leadership at several world-class organizations, including NASA, Google, Microsoft, and countless others. He also released his book, Facing Our Futures, early this year, showcasing his foresight expertise and chronicling his journey in the realm of futurism. Ian talks to him to find out more. Thanks for joining me for, for a little bit. Um, yeah, I'd love to get in, like, to learn a little bit about you, Nick Badminton. Yeah. Um, a bit about like how you got into the futures world. Tell, tell us a little bit about how the accent came to Canada, and we'll go from yeah, there. Yeah, um, thanks so much, Ian. It's really interesting, actually. I, I sort of tell a story with all of the keynotes that I give on stage when I chat to clients, and I sort of pull out a book called The Osborne Book of the Future, and it was published in 1979. So I was about seven or eight years old at that point in time. My dad bought me the book as part of a school book sort of reading thing. And it was a book about the year in the, um, the world in the year 2000 and beyond. And it was, you know, rockets and robots and wearable computing and living on Mars and living under the ocean, all sorts of fantastical things. And, and that really sort of inspired me to really get into looking more about science fiction, whatever. But I came back to it years later when I started doing the futures um, work more seriously and be like, oh, I've kind of been looking at, you know, the world of futures for a long time. Around about the age of 10, I started programming computers at university. I did applied psychology computing, focused on artificial intelligence and language and, and organizational change. That was the mid 90s and sort of spent a couple of decades building very large sort of behavioral targeting analytic machine learning platforms. So I sort of spent a lot of time, you know, in, in the future of tech, you know, the majority of my life. And the last sort of 10, 12 years have been focused on, you know, running conferences, workshops, you know, I've done over 400 keynotes. I've worked with some of the largest companies in the world, ranging from, you know, Google, Bank of Canada. Um, I've, I've done some work with NASA o over time, uh, you know, it, and, and it's really exciting to, to see so many people interested about what comes next and really pushing our boundaries of thinking and to understand that strategic thinking is today is stifled because it's all short termism. And that short termism means that we're not prepared for the unknowns ahead of us. And that's kind of what I bring to the clients that I work with the ability to have foresight, but to ask questions around, you know, what if the world was different? And what is our position in that world in 10, 20, 30 plus years, and create that picture so that we can start to have some evidence of what we can do today to be ready for that 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 point in time where we are going to be flourishing and we are going to be thriving because the, the companies that don't typically disappear right how did you fall into that in canada I'll, let me be a bit cynical about canadians for sure. a moment like yeah. they tend to follow you're doing this as a brit living in canada yeah, for sure how did that come about like how do what, what makes this place home for you basically so, so I live in Toronto now, and I've been here about four and a half years. I moved, I, I moved in 2008 to Vancouver. Uh, and after about two or three years, about three years after I moved there, a really uh, good friend of mine moved from Berlin. And I'd gone to school with this guy, and he was a very senior designer. And he was working in all sorts of like augmented and virtual reality. He, he was originally at, at Nokia and another uh, other uh, places. And we just started talking about futures and design. And I never really called the work that I was doing anything else apart from like it's innovation work or innovation consulting 
But in all reality, I was doing a lot of speculative fiction and, and, and design futures. And then once I, I could give that a bit of a name, I started organizing conferences. So in 2013, I worked with Karis O'Connor, my friend, and Amber Case, who's very well known out there. Um, we put on a conference called Cyborg Camp uh, in YVR, and about 150 people flew from all over the world to talk about this intersection of humanity and technology. And I was completely blown away literally got my credit card out booked the venue booked the food for lunch sold some tickets made it all happen and i started doing events um i've done other events like future camp which is an unconference um a lot of design fiction happens there i've done things uh, around like dark futures which was uh called the the black mirror of ted talks so sort of going into sort of um more challenging territories around what's really going to shape what could be potentially a, a more difficult uh, point in time ahead of us right and and all of that has, has just meant that I sort of you know I was writing getting on tv and radio and I built up a bit of a reputation here in Canada and now across North America and I speak across Europe and the UK as well so you know it sort of started off because I was passionate and no one was doing it it started with the community and people were really stoked and whilst we think that you know maybe Canada is not that progressive whatever you gotta remember the west coast <laughs> it's totally different yeah the west coast of the u.s and canada you know vancouver seattle portland down in san francisco it's full of really edgy interesting um, people that want to play with us with the with the counterculture we have to remember that people like douglas engelbart um really came out of stanford with all, all facets of modern personal computing that was taken on by Steve Jobs. And now Apple's like a $3 trillion company. The reason that, you know, other people maybe on the East Coast of the States and, and Canada weren't doing, you know, hugely edgy stuff is that they didn't ingest as much acid as people did. in, in the 1960s. I mean, we, 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 there's conjecture, but, you know, it's a cultural, countercultural sort of thing to start thinking about futures work. But what's happening now is that we're really busy, the, the futurist think tank that I run and working with you and, and the team over there, uh, the, uh, the label sessions, it's really, really busy because people really want to start to, what, I, what I'd say, like decode uncertainty, right? Really work out what comes next and how we can really sort of use that to our advantage. When you think about how companies think about the future differently now, what changes have you noticed between when you started doing this work and now being busier than ever? So a, a, a few years ago, you'd have some you know, project managers or directors in companies or they'd be running little projects and you'd come in, you'd do an hour consult here and there, or maybe you do a small project. And today the CEO or the CFO or the CIO is calling me and we're doing big projects, establishing large programs, establishing foresight in organizations. There's a uh, international, very large uh, engineering company that I work with. And I've done about seven or eight different engagements with them, everything ranging from doing keynotes um, to teaching about design fiction to teaching how to do futures work um, for their R&D people and their executive management. They now write you know, design fiction stories. We do reports on, you know, all, a whole number of areas relating to their business and against hypotheses they have about, you know, what could come next. And it's, it's really, really great. And, and it's all got sponsorship from the very top of the organization, right? So that's what I'm finding is that the people that email me are not, are not the people at the bottom. It's the people that sit there 
you know, with sleepless nights or they're reading books or they're really understanding and luckily, you know, reading my book on occasion saying, well, you know, there's something we can do and that's going to have a huge amount of advantage for an organization. Yeah, we used to do this thing called Future Worlds and it was always like the fourth or fifth ideation exercise at the end of a workshop and it was always like the thing you tagged on, people were a bit tired and actually a lot of good ideas came out of it but it was all like the sort of just crap that got thrown at a wall. That's right. But it got got 25 minutes to 30 minutes, you wrote like a piece of design fiction and by the end of the day you had like the sort of the younger people who had a bit more energy left in the room that were there for it and then now it feels like it switched, it's the people running the show are going hey guys, there's a totally different world that can happen now. You need to imagine that and what we might do with that. And, and what I'm finding is that these executives are incredibly talented and driven and they find this to be very, very difficult work um, because it's a whole mindset shift. I mean, I talk about shifting the mindset from what is to what if, but even just into that speculative world, you know, you always say that, you know, you leave how until last. So stop trying to build what you're thinking about. Just try and like be wild with your ideas, so, you know, radical imagination and whatever, and just really go out there and like, don't worry about if, how, and when we can build it. Just know that if, if, if there's a possibility for our organization to change, then what happens if we embrace that? And, you know, from the people, the processes, the, the systems, culturally, you know, societally, the impacts that, that and all of these dimensions. It's that holistic thinking that I think often gets missed in internal strategic practice <laughs> because it's so very focused against the target that's typically reduced, reduced cost or make money, right? How do you help people go from the signals to like go from like cut out the noise that effectively exists out there? Yeah, because you can get drown you can drown in information. How do you get them to go from there's all this noise happening around the place to like these are the signals that we know and we need to go pay attention to? Yeah, I mean myself and my team we we gather signals and we do a lot of work and we really do focus in and try and work out you know what is hype. Now hype is hype is incredibly noisy. And if you sort of spend your time, you know, on LinkedIn or out in the press and whatever, I mean, this year's flavor of the year is obviously generative AI. And whilst there's a huge amount of potential, the, the, the sheer amount of noise to, to value, sort of valued opinion and it, it, in, in the mix is, is, is so out of whack. Last year it was Web3 and Metaverse. And, you know, we, I was thinking about this earlier today. It seems that we're desperate for a better world and that's cool but we're sort of clutching at straws so what we try and do is say don't just grasp anything that looks like a good candidate to to, to be a better future um start thinking about futures plural start understanding the, the complexity of that situation start thinking about elements of of reaching limits of of ability potential collapse and then potential transformation and start thinking about you know what you really need and putting the human back in the the center of the you know of the focus it might seem sensible but we often forget this and you know with with a lot of the hype that's out there it's like oh suddenly you know hands up you know ask audiences like hands up who's heard of chat gbt and it's like everyone today which is astounding i mean they hit 100 million users in 60 days i mean that's astounding as well and 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 then it's like who's used chat gpt and work and there's always one or two people in the back and it's like we need to talk about this because <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of challenges you know with the adoption of technology before maybe it's you know, it, it's it's ready to go. And it was the same with metaverse and augmented reality and whatever. And we, what we do is we really try to come back to a truth. 
right? And, and, and I think that truth is, okay, we want to be more productive. We maybe want to be more efficient. We really, we know that technology can help us. But let's not start with the technology and work backwards. Let's start with what we really want, the frame of, of you know, the frame of the world that we live in today and how that could change um, from a cultural societal perspective. Um, and, and what does success look like in 10 or 20 years? And then you can say, okay, what's going to help us get there, right? Alternatively, you can start with tech and you can start going into these deep tech future stuff. But ultimately you're you're putting blinkers on and it doesn't really help us in the long run so you can do lots of projects where you've got lots of both sides of the of, of the picture right and i think it's really important to have that holistic view in your book um you use the word dystopian 160 times <laughs> which i think is really interesting yeah yeah but you're quite positive you're a positive optimistic person about the future like how do we reconcile that thought sort of dystopian thinking with like being an optimist the book was written very purposefully to say we are forgetting to look at how bad it could be if we make bad decisions today. So the the framework, the positive dystopian framework that I actually have in the book and, and the, the use of dystopian thinking is incredibly valuable. If you set principles at the beginning, one's very positive, you know, it's about equity and equality and all the good stuff, right? And then you set dystopian principles as well, which is about greed and, you know, um, profit for the few, technology first, solution first, which is kind of how we operate today in the industrial complex, right? Um, and then we run our process through this of like singles to trends to scenarios and potentially out into design fictions. You end up with this with this picture of, of an incredible opportunity and an incredible um, challenging, collapsing, difficult to manage situation, which is ultimately dystopic. And, and having those two perspectives is incredibly important because we've been, we've been conditioned to be unbridled optimists and you know p politicians never want to say something can be bad you know technocrats are never going to say that something could be bad you know generally we don't absorb that that bad infant that 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 bad news um but there's actually a huge amount of value and that's what my book tries to do and there, there's not a lot of books out there that try to say embrace how bad it can be uh, as well as how positive it can be i mean Sometimes it mixes people up when they think about, oh, Nick, can you come in and talk? But we don't want to talk about how bad it could be. But there's something about being real. We live in an industrial complex that's been created over 300 years across the dimensions of energy and transportation and across communications information. And, and we're, we're sort of careering towards a, a point where we're constantly collapsing, transforming, collapsing, transforming. And that's okay. But what's the trajectory out of that? And the trajectory out of that is informed by the positive futures that we outline, which is, I would say, the majority of the work. The dystopic piece is literally a reference point to make sure that we don't just fall into the same traps that we have done over the last 300 years, which is you know, money-focused, solution-focused, and humanity on the back burner. I think it's really interesting. I was reading through it. It made me think of being at Gatwick Airport about nine months ago, and you turn up and there's 20 self-service passport yeah. things to get through the border and like loads of them were broken yeah. and then something was going wrong where like lots of people that there were way more exceptions than normal yeah. and then there was one lady servicing like a queue of 15 20 easy jet flights worth of people coming back to britain right. 
trying to get through the border and she's like there's and there's two guys who are like i can't help i don't work for the border service right. i'm just here to try and make you queue more effectively yeah, exactly and just angry brits yeah like screaming and like shouting and like, the three people that are left in this sort of sad customs hall and as you're going through the, the lady in the front's like there's nothing i can do but they fired all my colleagues those those robots over there effectively replaced my colleagues <laughs> yeah exactly and she's handling it with like grace decorum a bit of humor and if someone got really difficult, she'd just kick them to the back. But most people who were angry, she was handling it really, really well. Yeah. And to me, that sort of summed up this world of like the really dark place you can go is actually where you've given no care and just replaced humans with tech. That's right. The optimistic place is like there's still people like her left in the world and she's had a she day. She's been yeah. shouted at, she's been sworn at, and she's still handling it with a smile on her face. The, the optimistic future is how do you pair tech and her or lots of people like her? <laughs> it's fascinating i mean this is just poorly designed systems it's in every airport i mean I, I had the experience in pearson airport when i came back from dallas last week and i was just like you know I, i'm i'm tall i'm like six four and they've got a, a nexus machine and it raises up to scan your face and it can never focus and it's always broken because there's multiple but you know you go to the u.s right and and this is full tilt like surveillance capitalism right but like, you know, I got to LA, I remember I, I landed internationally, got to LA, rolled through. And as I'm walking through, it's got a camera on me and they're like, like go straight through. It's all good, you know? Um, and, and I would argue, even though, you know, the challenges of surveillance and gathering information and facial recognition technology are there in that situation, it's a more deeply human experience because the technology is almost invisible versus, you know, this cube in the corner that just looks like... You know, a, a Microsoft Connect has been strapped to like a, 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 a Mac, Mac Mini. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's interesting, right? But like you know, the human aspect, we always fall back onto the humanity and uh, of of needing you know some sort of communication. It's it's like when we go to checkout in the supermarket, you always have to bring someone over to, to help you scan. I don't know some carrots, and you're just like wondering like what's actually happened. Uh, and so, yeah, it, how do you balance this out? It's because you, you can balance it out by going through every single different kind of scenario versus the yay, come through, scan your face and all is well scenario, um, which generally uh, can fail. Um, technology fails. Um, and, th and this is going to be the stumbling block for automation and all of these systems. And I always, you know, very provocatively put in my keynotes just a slide that says, what, what if the power runs out? Right? What, what happens in a world that's heavily technological when the power runs out, right? It's Was it also you the reference sharks and nibbling at internet cables in Thailand or it's Australia or somewhere like well, that? Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, interestingly enough, that's where dark futures started from was a conversation about sharks eating cables under the sea in Thailand. It was. It's, it's a true story. On a pub, on a pub um, patio in Vancouver with three of my friends that became the first, it was the first roster of Dark Futures. And that's where, the com that, that's where Dark Futures came from. It's exactly that. It's like what... That wasn't on the risk log, was no, it? No. I mean, what happened when it... What, what happened? You know, you know what, what happened? It's like uh, every once in a while, trawlers trawl up the internet cable between Greenland and Iceland and call, it cause a huge amount of problems. It's like one of those things. And it's like, we, we and this is what's interesting. So, so James Dator, you know, incredibly famous uh, futurist out of, uh, you know, University of Hawaii, Manoa School of Futures. 
you know, he talks about, you know, the, the, the four futures, right? Which is sort of business as usual, limit, you, you find your limits uh, to, you know, your ability and discipline. Um, you've got collapse and then you've got transformation. I talk about that a lot. And uh, we're in this constant flow of, I think, limits, collapse, potential collapse and transformation. I think it's incredibly interesting to play around, you know, pictures of your organization in those four states. Right. Um, and and there's lots of interesting work out there. I mean, what's nice about futures work is there's lots of different methods and tools you can apply. I try and do things simply enough so that people's minds aren't blown too much by suddenly it's like, you know, there's a plurality of futures and there's seven different kinds of you know possible futures, plausible futures. And it just like the nuance just kills people. Right. And that's some of the challenges with futures work in an academic perspective. And what we try and do is just bring it in and say, okay, signals to trends, to scenarios. How's that going to affect your organization? What are people thinking? How's that really going to reflect off of humanity? Historically, um, what has this kind of trajectory uh, meant? And looking forward, what are these unknowns ahead of us that, that are potentially going to change things up? Um, I'm just doing some research for a very large dairy client, and it's like precision fermentation could, you know, in an absolute sense, could mean that we never, ever drink milk from cows ever again. But that's not how things play out. So what does it look like in the gray areas between like now and 50 to 100 years into our futures, right? That's one way of pissing off a lot of Canadians, telling them that they won't have a dairy from a cow anymore. Well, it, or, or not, you know, it's really interesting. Um, uh, there's an organization called Rethink X run by Tony Sieber, and uh, they did a future of agriculture um <laughs> uh, report a couple of years ago and and you know the good old s curves and exponential change and adoption and whatever and they were like you know the the american beef industry is going to be completely bankrupt by 2030 because of precision fermentation and, and cellular agriculture cellular meat it doesn't quite follow that you know it like we we have to understand humanity is the wild card and the chaos in the mix right and uh you know culture is the thing that disrupts that more deeply than anything else. We've been eating meat around a campfire for ten, well, tens of thousands of years. And we're still going to be doing that in like 20, 30, 50, 100 years as well. It's also interesting when we, I did some work with a farming cooperative a couple of years yeah. ago. And you turn up and talk to a farmer and you talk about sustainability and they immediately just go, don't you dare talk to me about sustainability. My family's been farming this land for 250 right. years. Sustainability is my kid taking over it and their kid taking over yeah. it. It becomes a really interesting. Actually, like, farmers are great futurists because they kind of they can they they see what's changing. They understand global warming. They understand climate change. They understand stuff like that. You're making a face as you tell me I'm wrong, and I'm looking forward to this. But like they're, 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 there's so much bias in them from like we've done this for years and it's always been fine. But there's also something quite interesting of I don't want to screw this up. But who comes next? So there's something really interesting you're saying. We have to recognise that there's an incredible amount of knowledge and skill in the people that we're chatting to. We cannot we cannot walk away and say, okay, um, here's a net new world that's going to change everything about what you're doing, whatever. With farmers, and I've spoken to. I, I think I've, I speak to farming, agriculture, agri-food, you know, food business audiences more than any other audience. It's really interesting to me. I grew up in a in a 4,000-person village in the southwest of England. My dad um, was the manager or the, the director at the slaughterhouse. And then he spent like 30, 40 years working in the dairy industry. And I sort of go and I meet these farmers across Canada, across the U.S., and 
I get mixed responses. I get people that are stoked about technology that want to change how things are working. I've got farmers that are just mad at the government and regulations. Um, climate change, it's an easier conversation today. Um, but I've literally been, I've had people come up to me after, like stand up during the Q&A at keynote and call me a liar around uh, extreme weather and the effects of extreme weather and climate change on, you know, on you know, our ability to grow food. You know, I tell stories like flying over um, from Vegas to Toronto last year, flying over Nebraska, looking down and looking at the River Platte. Actually, I was looking at the, uh, the, the riverbed of the River Platte because it didn't exist in one of those parts of America where irrigation is needed more than anywhere else, right? I mean, things are changing. And I, I said, you know, the, the future is terribly inconvenient. And we can either sit around and say, everything's going to be great. And suddenly, we're going to find ourselves in a very difficult position. A couple of years ago, I advised um, a, a company that grows uh, vegetables and fruit in Europe. And they, they grow it across many countries and they freeze them and they white label them and they bag them up and really cool company, really, really progressive. And um, I dug out a report uh, and the report was by Politico and it was, it was about um, what was going to happen in Southern Europe in terms of the extremity of weather and the, how that's going to affect the industry and what's happening Spain is decimated. Italy is decimated. Exactly like the report was speculating. But I, I sort of say in Europe, we're, we're, we're almost like 15, 20 years ahead of schedule in terms of how, how tough it's going to be. And then if you think about it, if you can't grow tomatoes in Italy, it's a cultural catastrophe as much as it is uh, a, an agricultural catastrophe. And this report was, was beautiful. It, it sort of used some great language and terrifying language. Um, they, 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 talk, they, they, they spoke, they, they spoke about, um, you know, an apocalypse bounty or something like that in, in Northern Europe, Northern Europe would then start to take over all the agriculture rule and needs of the whole of Europe and start growing things like tomatoes and whatever. And suddenly, you know, these other countries would be decimated. Other countries will win. And it's kind of this kind of screwed up situation. Right. Um, but I always say that denial is not a river in Africa, right? We, <laughs> it's such a bad dad. Yeah, it's a awful, bad right? But like, you know, but it's honestly, it, it's like you know, it's terribly inconvenient. But what's better to to wonder what if the world changed and it did go into those extreme situations and how you react and how you survive, or to just say, nope, we've already done, we've always done it this way, and uh, you know, and then suddenly you, you lose all your farming potential right um it's really really tough and you know we, we live in a globalized world and i i sort of come back to the mega trends and whatever the globalization and the you know ability to you know grow different foods from around the world and suddenly you roll into your local supermarket and it's full of fruit and vegetable that you shouldn't be able to eat in that part of the world is sort of the beauty of what we've created it's also created some of the the biggest tensions and the biggest threats to things like the agricultural um, food systems that are actually on our doorstep as well. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I remember doing this interview with a farmer in Alberta. It was about banking for farmers. 
and he he was talking about a storm that rolled through off the Rockies, and he's like, we get crazy storms that come through. We've always had them. But he's like, I've no, we've had some that have been like worse or earlier than they would normally happen. So we had a crop decimated by a massive hailstorm, and he had two banks. One was a big national bank, blue, based in Toronto. Um, I'll let people guess who they are. And one was like a bank that's blue and based in Calgary. And basically, he couldn't make repayments on his loans because it had completely screwed up his entire cash flow. So he'd lost his biggest crop of the of the year. And the the local bank went, yeah, yeah, we felt that too. I've got dents in my car. Like I've got it's done damage to like my house is like needs re-roofing because of that storm. We'll de- we'll defer your payments. There's no interest. Don't worry, it'll be okay. And then the banking that was based in Toronto basically went, well, that's storms never come through there that early. That that can't be true. No, no, we're going to hold you to your payments. And he was like, what the fuck? But it's like that world of like what you can see, like people can see the change happening, but like how does that impact everything through the through the value chain? I mean, you, you bring up something really important, right? If that bank, if that big bank that was slightly um, sort of a few steps away from Alberta had actually done, you know, good ongoing futures work, they would have anticipated that these these scenarios would have happened to their clients, and they would have a deep sense sense of empathy. Right, and they'd and they'd probably have a good dialogue with the local banks that are, that are on the ground in Alberta or wherever the farmers are to try and come together to to support an ecosystem that's incredibly important. Right, um, and this is why everything's so short sighted. Um, I, I do a lot of work with banks, and I do a lot of work with banks that focus on agriculture as well. And I, I find that most of them are really, yeah, really empathetic towards what we need. The water energy food system um, needs to be protected um, more than anything else. Water scarcity is going to cause huge problems in energy generation, and it's also going to cause huge problems in shortages of you know food or reduction of ability to grow like vegetables and legumes. And we're not even getting into protein, you know, raising protein and whatever, right? So um, the world has to create some sort of uh, I talk about it in the book, like futures consciousness, <laughs> you know, so some, some consciousness about, you know, we're all in this together and how can we work in a better way, right? Because it's not working in silos. Well, you made a great segue to like my next question. So we got a review of your book from Brian Williams. Yes. Who we, we love. Yeah. But she described it as the manual you need to make sense of and more importantly, be part of creating the sorts of collaborative, inspiring, sustainable futures we all want to arrive at. Yeah. And when you talk about it not happening in silos and it requiring collaboration, yeah. I'd love to get inside your head of like, why did you write a book? Because there's so many out there. What made you go, right, I'm going to do the Nick Badminton take on futures? And then two, how do you drive that through into actually being collaborative versus CEO at, CEO at the top driving it down? Because that doesn't yeah. work most of the time. Okay, so let's think about this. Why did I write the book? Well, funnily enough, so so Bronwyn Williams and Theo Priestley invited me to to write a chapter for The Future Starts Now, which is sort of a compendium of, of futurist writing chapters. And I wrote a chapter called Start With Dystopia, which was the the, the progenitor of this idea um, that, that, that was built out into Facing Our Futures. Um, so it was like a 1,500-word essay, and uh, Bloomsbury put it as the opening chapter. And then I pitched Bloomsbury on a bigger idea of a book that sort of embrace our futures work but also this positive dystopian um framework and the the editor was pretty visionary at at bloomsbury and was like really into it and it was really timely because this was 2021 the pandemic was there 
a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the book sort of came out of that time. And that time was really tough for everyone. I mean, I just had a baby, I bought a house, all my business evaporated. Um, but I had all these wild ideas. Um, I ended up, you know, writing the book, acquiring futurist.com as well, like rebuilding my business and really doubling down on a whole new way of thinking. And a number of my clients, you know, helped me prototype the work that I, that I talk about in the book. And it's really, really important. Um, but like, why did I write It's Because people, there, there were no books about people doing that holistic futures work and embracing how bad it could be because we're biased against bad news, right? Um, but it can also be the most potent thing to help us affect change. So, you know, I wrote the book um, in, I, I sat down and, and wrote it in three months after several months of research. I was down in California um, in the desert, basically. And I, I wrote the book, pushed it out, edited it down and we finally got it out earlier this year in 2023 and uh it's been picked up by jp morgan as their next gem pick in in their book club some book club um yeah the next big idea club i've, I've sold a lot of books now and it's kind of cool which is kind of heartening because now people are starting to realize that you know they want to learn more about futures and one the book most importantly is a book about signposting a lot of the good futures and foresight work that's been done to date right there's, there's there's dozens of people that i say go and read this and go and read that and go and look at this and go and understand this and go down this rabbit hole and then it's got my my flavor and my opinion in there as well which just sort of tries to galvanize that and makes it uh, actionable and that's the point of like you know making it actionable and not just driving from the top you know getting the right people in the room to then you know derive useful insights that can be acted upon today is is the whole part of the framework that I've put together, right? Um, which again sort of pushes against what a lot of futures work is, which is speculative and very much lives as an artifact. Whereas I think that they, it can live as an artifact, but it has to have tendrils back to today, so that it's like you know what? Say we're considering autonomous vehicles in a city context. That's great. Um, let's ask these like 15 to 20 very serious questions today. Let's do some design fictions. Let's understand how and wh when this is likely to come. And who are some of the people out there we can start partnering with to try and um, imagine what those futures could be like with us. Uh, a prepared city or a prepared company is likely to be more profitable. And it's been proven that that happens. And we'll have a higher market capitalization because the vigilance helps them decode those those uncertainties that are ahead of them right which gives a higher level of confidence in their vision and their trajectory forward and uh, i think it's really interesting there's something quite interesting about the the companies that make a plan or the companies that have plans so i saw someone posting on linkedin today about like it's just annual strategic planning season people are going like what are we going to do over the next 12 months there's there's organizations and or leaders and you meet them and they kind of have the we're going to do this sequentially and we'll be here in 12 months and then you have the other ones that are like, this is the most important thing next. This is where we're going. We'll probably do these things along the way. But I tend to find those latter ones like have a much, they have a lot more fun at work, but they end up in a better place. It's interesting. There's a number of companies out there. Ikea is an example. They've started talking about scenarios rather than targets. Yeah. This is where, we, this is where we're going to play. This is how we're going to play. Rather than this is what we, how much money we're going to make and the kind of products we're going to produce. And it's like, you know what? That, that shift is, I think, the difference between a company that's truly great and a company that's literally just trying to satisfy shareholders. 
It's not like we have to make 457 million Billy bookcases this year. Well, the, well, the, and this is it, right? I mean, we're, we're stuck in the cycle of like quarterly profits, you know, yearly profits, good news, big ideas. And, you know, we're starting to see futures work come into the, the dialogue a lot more. And I think that, I think it's incredibly important. I, I honestly think, you know, in the next sort of 10 to 15 years, you're, you're going to see almost every significant like Fortune 500 company have a futures capability. I think they have to, um, whether they hire people like us or they they de- develop it internally, right? You know, I've got friends. I think a huge part of it is telling the story as well of like, where might we be going? That's right. Um, you know, General Electric do it. Um, people like McDonald's do it. People like SNCF in, in France do it. You know, there's lots of people that are really, really into it and and that they benefit greatly from the work that is actually undertaken and cities are doing it as well like i look at like paris is like the sort of yeah. poster child of it but you've got like a mayor that's going this city will look very very different in the not too distant future yeah. here's stuff i'm doing right now but here's stuff i might do in the future you know toronto is incredibly interesting as a city it's the fastest growing city in north america and it feels like yeah. it there's construction everywhere it's the fourth largest city as well um but I always, it always makes me chuckle. And I, if you look at some older systems that still exist, so streetcars, whilst the streetcars might be new, you know, the rails and, and, and the infrastructure or not. And, and occasionally you'll see one of these brand new streetcars turn up to a junction and the driver will jump out with a crowbar and change the gauge to go left and jump back in. And it's kind of, it's an interesting dichotomy of like, you know, these, these futures of these amazing new streetcars and turning left um, on old infrastructure. Well. It's also interesting that things like uh, self-driving cars won't really exist in the context of Toronto because streetcars are so weird in how they operate that you literally can't work it out. It's very difficult as a human driver. With the, the streetcar thing is amazing because when they got the, bought the new streetcars, yeah. This is really boring to anyone yeah. listening to this who isn't from Toronto. But like the old streetcars were like land yachts, like That's right. huge, heavy things. They went really fast. If they hit a car, the car was toast. Right. The new ones are like longer and lighter, yeah. but they never change the tracks to meet the streetcars. The new ones go slower. That's right. And they, they occasionally they bump and bounce off the tracks. If a car hits them, the streetcar ends up worse off than the car does. That's right. And it's just like a system that's like, you haven't thought this through, guys. I mean, Jaron Lanier, in one of his books, um, You Are Not a Gadget, I think talked about the, the idea of lock-in. And it, you, it's exactly what you know train tracks are. It's lock, you're locked yeah. in. It's like the UK rail service. The reason we can't go fast in the UK versus Europe is that the, the train tracks are locked into a, a different uh, uh, level gauge that does not support fast trains. And it's the same with um, streetcars here and whatever. And then there's a discussion around, you know, how do you change transportation? Let's have flying cars. And, and you know, <laughs> just like, nothing really helps, you know. It's like, now we need more air traffic controllers. And, oh, yeah, anyway. Um, it, and this this is a really interesting discussion because and, you know what we're, we're just going backwards and forwards on just our experiences out there and i think that's what's really important about futures work is always been being awake and looking around in my book i sort of talk about a moment that i had a few years ago when i was in uh, uh, vancouver i i st- stood on the the corner of georgia and granville street it's very famous it's used in a lot of movies it's kind of like legendary 
doubles up as New York and New York cities and, and like whatever. even Asian cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sort of like you look, look, and and do you know what? You know, there's all sorts of transportation systems and buildings and whatever. Uh, in the book, I sort of say, you know, it's like Neo from the Matrix. Suddenly, you can see the falling code everywhere. And it's interesting that once you start doing the futures work, you start gathering signals, looking for trends. It becomes sort of second nature. And you suddenly start to th- see how like culture and technology and society all like collide together to cause moments you know of change all around you all the time i mean to, you know toronto is a uh, is a perfect place to look at how badly you can sort of screw up a city system right um, but it's also a place you can look at to see some really progressive stuff that that changes how people can live together in amazing ways so i want to ask you a question one last sort of Futures question cool. before we do a few quick fire things that we used to wrap these yeah. up. But um Twitter's now going most of the way through its rebrand to X. Yeah. They're gonna be the everything app. Yeah. There's gonna be about payments, it's gonna be creators, etc. There's people who love it and there's people who hate Elon and will always criticize it. But you've advised governments around payments and um fintech. Mm. Where do you what's your take on where that bit of the world is what might be going? So you know <laughs> Like payments and finance, I mean, it is changing and it's changing drastically. And I've worked with companies, you know, banks and payment companies, credit card companies in South America, in North America, in Europe. Um, you know, we're locked into a system like the US dollar is reserve currency. You know, we're still talking about cash, uh, you know, flowing around the world. Yes, digital's rising and there's causing all sorts of dissonance. Um, central bank digital currencies are like the new platform to die on. Um, for freedom fighters, uh, certainly in North America, right, um, and in Europe as well, and we, we're seeing a lot of challenges there. Uh, you know, the modernization of the monetary system is inevitable, and it will be digital. But how much do we turn that into something that's a surveillance mechanism, a la, you know, China's social credit system, right? Um, which is the potential for central bank and digital currencies to go full tilt, programmability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, surveillance, a whole number of different things. Um, but really, there needs to be a soft touch of, 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 of you know, currency that's tracked, but not, um, not on a per transaction, per person basis, that's, that's utilitarian and useful, right? But then there's also knock on effects, whereas larger cultural, uh, cultural situations, so the world's getting more expensive, if someone pays you in cash, then there's the ability to dodge tax, right? Uh, and that's still a huge part of the global economic system, right? And what happens yeah. when you, you take that ability for people to be able to pay for themselves, whilst you might collect more taxes, you, you potentially drive down, drive up the cost of living and drive down the uh, the ability to live good lives, right? So yeah, it's 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 really interesting the dynamic. And then you think, okay, reserve currencies yes. in a digital world, suddenly the the you know, the Chinese one, um, digital one, and maybe the digital euro becomes contenders on a on a local jurisdiction or a group group of local jurisdictions um that start to separate the world and, you know, you have like China and Russia and a number of people leaving the IMF and this is a speculation I do. So, and it sort of like helps people to really realize that the world that we live in and we've created is, isn't so safe from, from a finance perspective, right? Um, you know, and, you know, cash is king is going to disappear. It's absolutely going to disappear. 
I mean, I hardly spend cash at all these days. But you go down to South America, um, 80% of businesses still do everything in cash. You go down to the States, huge amount of business still does cash. You go to Norway, you can't find cash. Yeah, and it's been like that for a long time. I was like, someone was doing this trip through Germany into Norway, and they were like confused by, in Norway they hadn't seen cash, but you think Germany wouldn't be very cash heavy. They love cash. Yeah. Like they, you can buy stuff on a train in cash. It's very weird. And it's interesting. If you look at the history of cash, it's actually been used for um, communicating messages. If you go down into the Smithsonian uh, and you go and look at the, there, there's an exhibit about money. It actually shows you the evolution of dollars and different uh, denominations and how some of them were actually used for political campaigning and messaging and important messages out to the American public. And, you know, in God we trust is still there proudly on. You know, it, it's it's very interesting um, that, that cash isn't just cash. It, it's like this propaganda mechanism or this communication mechanism or this indication of um yeah, flexibility in a way, right? Um, you know, and again with digital cash, what happens when the power runs out? We go back to pan shillings and pence, and then Nigel Farage will be we, happy. We start, we start tra- trading in bones and shells and goats. <laughs> <laughs> totally nerdy thing, but there's this amazing story of people in in like um, the former Soviet Union. They used to trade in. They called it bone music. So it was like music that like they'd take X-rays. Oh, really? They take old x-rays because it was actually quite a good format for using as like counterfeit vinyl. And then they carve um, wet, like prohibited Western music or prohibited like old music that the Soviets didn't like. They carve it into an x-ray yeah. and then you could play it like five or six times and then the thing would disintegrate. Awesome. But people use that as currency. It's yeah, well, like you see that in Cuba as well. There's a lot of people, hard drives, hard drives and yeah. the, the underground um, media scene in, in Cuba and stuff like yeah. It's mad. Like, so, and that's, you know, what if humans find a way to be different? What if humans find a way around the systems? That's what futures work is all about. What, what if we find, find ourselves having to operate outside this world, right? You know, it, it's like in dairy. Oh, right. In the future, we're suddenly thrust into a world where, you know, all cheese and all milk and uh, yogurt, whatever, actually comes from um, these, you know, cellular protein bioreactors, you know. But I've got a friend with a cow. Come over here. You know, you know it's, it's wild, right? Um, and I, I think that that's really. I actually, I actually think looking at the underground of uh, of, of organized crime is really interesting as a as a tool for looking at how cities and organizations work as well. But I think that's another conversation. There's, well, I want I want to do one of these of like we used to do a thing called dark dispatches, kind of like your dark futures. Yeah. I want to bring that back and. We we do stuff around like what can what can companies learn from sex workers, drug dealers, money launderers. That that's exactly you know it's like the Freakonomics stuff, right? Um, that's exactly what Dark Futures is. We we we've had vicars and all sorts of people, right? So it's like yeah, super interesting. So good. Yeah. I'll ask you a couple of the quick fire sure. questions, but like um, this gets mixed reactions when we ask futurists. But where do you go to feed your brain? You know, I I I speak to friends that are out in the field building deploying working in big companies working in small companies playing with new technologies i chat to them a lot and i've got uh dozens of people out there that i i've managed to get to know well over the years um obviously social media and, and chit chatting is really good i've actually created a a, a futurist discord with about 100 103 of us in there that, that chat about all sorts of interesting stuff with future stuff and there's some really really smart people like chris rice and 
um and Jermay Cascal, uh like um I think I might have said his name wrong, but like, you know, lots of people out there doing podcasts, um, obviously reading books, watching programs, just being out and about, just like I'm a constant sponge. Uh it also, you know, I have to work out how to better turn that off when I'm hanging out with my partner because it can get a bit intense, right? So yeah. Um what's underhyped right now? What's underhyped? Yeah. The importance of connection, family and humanity. We do overhype too much, so it's like underhype needs to come out. You know, it's just, you know, we got to dial it up, right? We, we get a dial of humanity. I mean, if you, if you look at our needs, like certainty, variety, significance, growth, compassion and love and all the good stuff, we've been like that for, for tens of thousands of years and we're going to be like that for tens of thousands of years going forward. Um, so, you know, trying to inject that back into the mix is really important. There's a great Rory Sutherland piece the other day talking about how um, beer in a pub yeah. shouldn't be taxed. Right. Because you're actually doing good, like he's got what loads of positive externalities the tax man doesn't see, but you should over you should tax more like booze that you buy at a liquor store or a grocery store, but consuming at home, because actually that's that, that's bad for humanity and healthcare and social cohesion, etc. I guess it depends. Like, I get that's an idea we don't talk about. Much. Yeah, I get. I guess it depends which kind of pub you go for a drink in, though, right? Not a flat roof one. <laughs> <laughs> flat roof pub paid double tax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um okay last one how weird are you how weird am i yeah uh, i don't feel that weird but i guess people you know okay like i'm heavily tattooed got a microchip in my left hand i'm an advocate for psychedelics and really got into talking about microdosing early on um i still I, i'm 50 and i skateboard i drive a i drive a big jeep i i believe in shamanic principles i do tarot and believe in techno paganism you know, go figure. You can, you can, you can, you can work out if that's weird or not. So Toronto, a ten out of ten. If you're in Portland, maybe a three. If I was in Portland, I'm, I'm an entry level weirdo. Like you know, but like, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still sort of, you know, I, I listen, I listen, I listen to vinyl. I enjoy live music. I think that coming together with friends is incredibly important. I think that uh, I'm deeply skeptical of most technologies that are out there, and I'm, you know, kind of a late adopter of many things but I'm an early adopter of being critical, uh, thinking critically about the possibility of technology in the world, right? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thing. thanks so much. I want to not take too much of your time. Like I've, I'm trying to keep these things short and I just kept going. Yeah, well, so, um... like so concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.